Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Food, Wine, and Whiskey in Your Own Backyard. I'm your host, Rob, and today's going to be a fun show. We're going to talk wines uh, from Paso Robles. We've got uh, one family, I guess I would say, but maybe call them two families on the uh, show today. We're going to talk about their wines, their wineries. Um, Eric is a winemaker and has been for a number of years, and him and his wife, Joanne, Russell, Eric and Joanne Russell have a uh, winery out in Paso Robles. Not sure if I'm saying that right, but they can correct me in just a minute. Bryce and Sarah Garrett are the owners of Serrano Winery, and there's this connection between both wineries. They're they're related, so we're going to have a great conversation talking about what's going on in Paso, kind of to me, that that area for wine has been a little bit under the radar, and something that I've just recently become familiar with and kind of got interested in and kind of been exploring and they were nice enough to come on and just kind of talk to me about what's going on in Paso and kind of educate me on what they're doing and and kind of what the vibe is out there and so we appreciate that Eric Joanna Bryce Sarah thanks and uh, welcome to the show thank you thank you thanks for having us yeah you let's start with uh, you Eric and, and Joanne you guys have been doing this for for quite a while yeah, my first vintage uh, of Rabbit Ridge was 1981, and before that, I worked at Chateau Saint Jean Winery for a year and Simi Winery for a year. And you, you, what what got you into wine? I mean, was it something that you were already drinking and and interested in, and decided you wanted to make, or how did you kind of fall in love with wine? I was teaching school, and the kids were going to drive me to drink anyway, so I figured it'd be cheaper to make it. There you go. It's, it's really that simple. Yeah, and then uh, uh, one one year in college, I got I got sick and I watched the old Columbo episode that was about two brothers who made wine, and one wanted to make cheap wine, and the other wanted to make good wine, and one brother off the other, and it was just kind of cool, and it got me interested <laughs> in wine, and started making it in my garage. That's that's quite a story. The episode was any old Florida in the storm. It's a great episode still. Really, really, okay. I, I'm old enough that I remember that series. I'm not sure if uh, Bryce and Sarah have any idea what we're talking about. Yeah, not a clue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to say just to start off and let the the listeners know, Eric, you, you've got quite a few accolades. I mean, you you've had your wine at a White House dinner. Um, you've been winemaker of the year. You've, you've had winery of the year. You've gotten all kinds of, of awards for what you're doing. So you obviously, you know, not only have you been around for quite a few years and making great wines, but you've been highly rated. I mean, people have obviously thought you've done a really good job in what you're doing. So kudos to you. Probably why we're still in business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now you you weren't always in Paso, right? You went uh, you started out in Sonoma. Yeah, I was uh, uh, actually in Healdsburg, uh, up in Sonoma County for almost twenty years. And so, you know, obviously, some people when when you think about wine for for people in America, you know, I think our first thought is always Napa Valley, right? That's where we go to first, and then I think right right below that, maybe just slightly below that, would be Sonoma. So if you're in Sonoma, what would what would make a person decide to go from Sonoma down to Paso? We were I was seeing a lot of the people who were coming in buying vineyards in Sonoma weren't really farmers and we didn't have very much control over our own grapes. And so I started uh, looking around and I came down to Paso Robles and I I spent a whole week down here tasting wine and, and going around the land. And this was like in 1995, and it had so much possibility because they were making pretty good wine with absolutely no technology at all. And I thought to myself, man, if technology ever hits this area, it's going to explode. And the land land down here was the most intriguing factor. It had so many different soil types and so many... So much more uh, interesting climate, microclimate, little gaps in from what Sonoma had. So, I mean, I just fell in love with the area as its potential right away. And uh, now, 
20 years later or 15 years later, it's, it's exploded down here. Okay. What was the difference, Eric? I mean, you were doing what wines in, in Sonoma and then going to Paso. I mean, was it the same varietals that you were trying to grow or did you have to kind of learn a, a different grape and kind of the, the weather and the climate and it, it affected things? Did you have to kind of reteach yourself a little bit about winemaking? Yeah, you, 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 every area is different. Every vineyard is different. And when I, I, our main variety up in Sonoma was, was Zinfandel. It's what we were most known for. We were one of the original big four R's of Zinfandel. And Paso was known for Zinfandel. So that was, was a, a, a fairly smooth transition. What was really different is, up there, we were in the Russian River Valley, which made really great Chardonnay. And so I thought down here in Paso, we're in a fairly cool area. I'd be able to make some nice Chardonnay, too. And about the first uh, 10 years, I just hated our Chardonnay. And um, uh, over the last three, it's gotten pretty good. And I said to my wife uh, a long time ago, because that's her favorite wine, Chardonnay, I said, God, Chardonnay sucks in Paso Robles. <laughs> but it turned out, what turned out what sucked was the winemaker because I wasn't doing it right. So were you really just following so what you were, what the, kind of the process you had up in, in Sonoma? That you were just kind of trying to figure that out and going, why in the world isn't it tasting the same? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So you just had to uh, kind of figure a few things out, tweak it a little bit, and now you've gotten it kind of where, where she likes it a lot. Well, not... She's always liked it, but actually now I like it too. Okay. Okay. I guess that, that matters a lot too. The winemaker needs to like what he's putting in the bottle. It helps. <laughs> Especially if you got to sell it, right? You got to really like it if you're going to sell it. Well, well, no, actually it's the opposite. If you like it, you don't really have to worry about selling it because you know you can drink it. You just put it down in your little, your little bunker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, What's the dynamic? I'm going to let you explain to the listeners the relationship and how it came to be with Serrano Wines. I'll let Bryce and Sarah tackle that or whoever wants to jump in on that one. You guys are related, and this is kind of a – I'm calling it two wineries, but it's like one big family, right? You guys are kind of in this together. Yeah, I'll let Bryce and Sarah handle that one. So how is Serrano related? So, how, are we, how are we related? Well, obviously, you know, rabbit is just you know, where we work full time and, and where we got started in wine. Um, but pretty early on, we realized, you know, we kind of have a knack to this. And I thought we could, you know, just use our own creativity, create, create our own brands from that. And um, thankfully, my parents have always been very supportive of um, that journey that, that we wanted to take. And so, yeah, I mean, it started small. We just thought, like, well, we kind of wanted to, create a brand that would be, you know, something that younger wine drinkers, especially uh, like us, that we could, um, you know, really market to. But then at the same time, we wanted to make a wine that was still appreciated by, you know, experienced wine drinkers. So from the beginning, that was always kind of our goal. And, and that's how we got started. And, and I want to expand on that a little bit by, you know, Eric has been doing this since 1981. And I think you, when we talked previously, you told me you guys really started in 2015. Is that the right year? Yeah. And when we talk about, you know, I think when I think about a young person in wine, um, and I think most people think this way, we think that they are probably from a, f a family in wine, and you are, but you didn't grow up in wine country. You and Bryce didn't grow up, you know, working you know, all the time in vines. Kind of tell us that story. You guys kind of on the other side of the, the coast, not from California. You're from the other end. Tell us kind of how that all worked out and how that came to pee. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up mostly in Florida. Um, I was around wine just because uh, my mom married Eric when I was about five years old. So I was introduced to this area very young, but I went to school in Florida. I grew up mostly in Florida. And so it's, from that, I never really thought of wine as a part of life. It, it wasn't really day-to-day -day for me. 
And then Bryce came from uh, South Georgia, and obviously there's no wine over there, so wine making. And, um, you know, both of us grew up and, and went to college even for um, different things. And um, I was studying, you know, economics, and Bryce was studying marketing, and um, we didn't ever really have the idea uh, to go into wine uh, until, you know, we started, well, we vacationed out here. Um, and while we were in college, and um, it was actually Bryce that really kind of fell in love with it. But before that, he really didn't have any, you know, introduction. He had no idea about this lifestyle of really what you know went into it. But he just kind of had a calling, and and pretty much convinced me to go work for my parents and uh, just take a chance and you know, start making wine. And I think that's great. And I and I think if I remember right, Bryce, you know. Sarah said you guys vacationed, but I think you remembered, I mean, I remember you telling me you actually worked when you went out there, right? Eric put you to work. Right. So uh, for me, it was an internship. Um, Sarah vacationed. She spent a lot of time by the pool in front of the TV. With a glass Uh, of wine. You know, I don't even know if Sarah was into wine at that point. Oh, is that right? Um, Okay. It was, so it, uh, Sarah, you know, oddly enough, didn't drink a lot of alcohol even in college. Um, she was a great designated driver for that, but um, it was actually the summer after we graduated where she kind of found the passion for it. Um, when we started working with it together, um, she was like, oh, well, you know, this wine tastes better than this, and this is why, and started figuring out her palate. Um, but yeah, that initial summer, uh, a lot of work and a little bit of play. That's awesome. That's a great story. Now, one thing I want to ask, you guys are, are young into wine, but it seems like you've had, you know, just, I don't want to call it instant success. I know you guys have put a lot of work into this and, and had a plan. But when I think about wine, you guys in your winery, you do everything, right? You guys are the winemakers. You're out working in the field. You're, you're uh, you know, pushing down the grapes and the barrels when they need to be. You're doing everything that it takes to put the wine in the bottle, right? Yep, we are. So how do two young winemakers, how do you develop your palate? You know, for somebody like me who's been drinking for just a few years, I'm still trying to, you know, get my palate where I can identify, you know, certain things in wines, good things, balance, whatever. You guys have obviously have a, a, just a natural skill to be able to do that. A a good palate just right out of the chute, or did you really have to work on that by really exploring all the different foods and and really developing, you know, eating those things so you could recognize it in the wine? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Mom's going to cut in and say practice makes perfect. That's what I would think. So they, <laughs> so they really experimented, and I just have to say they, they really studied and studied to, to perfect that. And, and is that, you know, I hear a lot of people say that you have to eat, like, you know, the currant and the raspberries and, you know, all the different things that could be flavors in, in wine to kind of get your palate to recognize those things in wine. Is that something that you is really true? Um. No, for us, we're just now getting into that part of it. Okay. Um, honestly, the first couple of years, um, Eric told us, make wine that tastes good to you. You yeah. can't sell it. You have to drink it. Um, and those first few vintages, you know, we would um, we would taste around Paso. We've been to Italy and we've been to France and we've studied with people and seen, you know, what can define the qualities that we like. Um, it actually hasn't been until here recently. Uh, we have a friend who's uh, studying for his W set three, and he'll bring in three, four bottles a weekend and blind taste them, so we can start uh, identifying the common components. But you know, we try to think a little more outside of the box. It's, but you I, know, I, we're not looking for specific flavors. It's just what tastes good. And you know what? I think that's a great point. I, I think that uh, you know, if it tastes good to you. I think that was great advice from Eric. If it tastes good to you, then you should be able to sell it. I mean, people are going to like the flavor. There's going to be enough people who like the same flavors that you do, probably. Uh, that's that's a great point. I didn't even think about it that way. I'm thinking of somebody who's drinking wine and trying to learn about wine. You guys are making wine, so the key there is to make sure it tastes good. And I'm sure Eric was probably a help in that regard. Was he? Right. He does. Yeah. Um, you know, first couple blends, 
uh, he wouldn't taste because he didn't want to influence the palate. Um, now, fortunately, Joanne never turns down a food glass of wine, so she <laughs> helped us a little bit. But, um, I mean, you know, we really put our teeth on the concept of we've got to stand behind this product. It has to fit our regulations, and then we can go from there. So tell everybody a little bit about, I mean, you guys are in the Central Coast Appalachian, right? And the AVA is Paso Robles. So this is a big Appalachian in California. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think it might be the biggest. I'm not I'm not sure. It's it's pretty huge. They've divided it, subdivided it into like eleven different sub appellations. And, and uh, is, each one is different each one is dramatically different. And how does Paso as far as size? I mean when people think about Napa, I mean Napa's fairly small, I I would say as far as in Napa Valley. You know, from top to bottom, size-wise, is it similar? Is it a small area, Paso? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, Bar & Grill fans, it's Jim with Madhouse Bar Talk, where me and my co-hosts sit around and talk about the things going on around Madhouse Bar & Grill in Elyria, Ohio. The whole conversation is unscripted, uncensored, and unedited. Anywhere where you stream podcasts, just remember, Madhouse Bar Talks, baby. Uh, the population small. I think it's 15, 20,000 20, maybe, 25,000. Okay, it's really, okay, it's really small. But, but like if you were to drive around the whole Paso Robles Appalachian, like if I were to start at, at Rabbit Ridge Winery and make a loop to drive around the Appalachian, it would probably take three or four hours. It's that, just that big. It covers okay, so that much ground. I, I thought it was a little bit you know, bigger than, than what you might going from north by Calistoga down to Napa in, in the valley. I thought it might be a little bit bigger than that. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, in yeah, in Paso, like you could start at our winery, and by the time you drive out to the winery, the furthest west of town, that's probably twenty-five miles, and then from there, you drive twenty-five miles south, um, all, all the way to like Santa Margarita, and then you can probably drive twenty miles east, and and. It even extends about five miles north. Um, so it's a, it's a huge population in terms of distance and you know square square miles or however they measure that. So that's the central coast. No, it's just Paso. That's just Paso. Yeah, yeah, it's just Paso. So if somebody's coming out to you know to visit. I mean, is there, is, is, I'm trying to think how you would set that up logistically. I guess you have to look at, you know, your all's area and wineries that you want to go to are, are enough of them close by to each other that you can, you know, it's a nice visit for people. Oh yeah. You, you can pick an area and then there's, there's a clusters of wineries kind of within each Appalachian or sub Appalachian. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like Napa Valley. Every, you know, there's so many wineries that are just hot off highway 29 right you you could you could spend four days on highway 29 and uh pastor robles you would just go to a different almost to a different area every day because you know unless you go someplace like where sarah and bryce are downtown where there's a bunch of wineries tasting rooms um or or to one of the other areas you can really only do about three or four wineries in a day here that that's that seems to be about. I I think whenever you go somewhere to look at wines, that's probably the number. So you can still do that there. Okay, I was just wondering how spread out, how much you know acreage each winery had if it was spread out a little bit more. But it sounds like it's very similar to when people go to Napa or to Sonoma. You get that same kind of feel of being able to pop into a lot of different wineries. Yeah. Okay. So when I think about Napa Valley, I also think about food. You know, that's that's become a big thing when people go visit wine places. Uh, you know, having good food available to them. How is 
Paso when it comes to uh, having food available and things like that, the town of Paso. Great I'll turn res- that over to Joanna. Great restaurant. I'll turn that over to Joanna. Okay. Yeah, Joanna will uh, know that more than me. She's she's actually done her own cookbook, so she's the foodie of that. Oh, nice. Well, sir, are you asking the availability of food in our region, like, you know, the restaurants and that type or internal restaurants and wineries? Well, just, yeah, do you do you have, a you know, a, a good amount of them? Are they really good? Or is Paso becoming known for having great cuisine as well? You know, when you think about going to Napa, and I'm not just talking about the French laundry and, you know, high-end places like that, but, you know, there's some really good, you know, call them, a, you know, diners and dives or whatever you want to call it that you can go in and get just a great meal. It doesn't have to be super fancy, but there's just good food all over the valley. Is that kind of what's popping up in Paso as well? Is it already there? Yes, actually it's taken a a while, but we are known for having some of the top restaurants really in the central coast, even down South, Eric and I go to Santa Barbara a little bit and we realized you know, we are fortunate. There aren't a lot, but we have more than most. We have more than Santa, probably San Luis Obispo. We have every type of cuisine, obviously Italian, Mexican, French. Uh, but both Eric and I traveled a lot to Europe, so we, we do like French laundry, and we do like really great fine restaurants. Sure. But we do have wonderful uh, dive bars here. Yeah. Have, you know, great restaurants we have great upscale restaurants there are not they're not on every block but we are becoming one of the food towns i believe um, in the central coast so yeah. we are keeping up i think wine just kind of kind of helps bring that in right i would think yeah when i when i first got here the only place you could eat uh, uh after about seven o'clock at night was jack in the box is that right and now there's a lot of good restaurants, and they all follow the uh, the wine industry out here. In fact, what you can't find out here are the larger sort of corporate restaurants, I call it, like an Outback or, you know, we even, you know, the big chain restaurants. Our town really and, is sort of not for that, even and though I, I grew up in Kansas Bay, and yeah. I like some of those. Uh, I was going to – You I'm can't s- find – I was going to say good because I, I, I always like, you know, when you travel, I like eating at places that, you know, we don't necessarily have in our own backyard. You know, it's something that's unique exactly. to you all over there. So that's kind of why I was asking about it because it's always fun yeah. to go someplace a, yeah, and try something new. Right. So getting back to Paso as far as wine, you know, and again, I know, I know I keep going back to, you know, Napa and what's grown there, but I think that's just a good reference for people who, who are into wines they, in America. They think Napa first. The soil, the type of grapes, the, you know, what's different about Paso than, you know, what they might think of traditionally for, you know, wines in the States. I mean, you know, typically you think about, you're going to think, you know, Cabernet, Merlot, and the other reds that might, you know, in that Bordeaux blend. Whites are big Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, but when we talk about Paso, what's what's different there? I think I think predominantly it's the soil. Um, if you go through Napa Valley, anybody that drives through Napa Valley, you'll kind of see this darker, heavier clay soil, and which is absolutely spectacular for Cabernet Sauvignon. And we have we have some of that down here too, but a lot the big difference is. Uh, the calcareous or limestone character of the soil. And if you come through here after the first weeds are kind of dished up in the springtime, especially where we are, we're in like the Willow Creek district. And it's, the ground is just white from all the limestone. And that white soil lets us get a real minerality character in the wine and lets us make some of the wines that are really grown well in the Rhone, uh, Syrah, Grenache, Mavedra, uh, especially, and then um, white Rhones like uh, Viognier, uh, Roussan, and Marsan grow really, really well here. And I don't, I don't think those grow that well in other parts of the state. And that's, I think, the main difference would probably be soil. 
And, you know, everybody thinks Pastor Robles is really, really hot. But actually, in all the years I've been here, Napa Valley always starts harvesting before we do. And right now it's been kind of a, an early spring and Napa Valley already has leaves on their vineyards up there. And we still haven't had bud break down here. Really? So we, yeah, we get, we get, we do get some hot spikes and some hot days. Um, but all in all, we usually harvest, start harvest later than Napa and the vines start growing later than Napa. Is, is that also because the nights get so cool? Very cold. And it's, I, I think somebody said Pastor Robles has some of the most 50-degree um, uh, temperature swings that per year of any place. And 40 degrees is just commonplace in the summertime. It'll be like 90 or 95 during the day, and it could be in the low 40s at night. That's a that's a big jump in temperature, big swing. Yep. So Sarah, Sarah Sarah's from Florida and whenever we sit out on the deck at night and have a glass of wine in August, by six thirty at night she's uh, putting on a sweatshirt because she's cold. Yeah, and I and and if I'm if I'm thinking like Sarah, I, I'm very well, I don't know if she likes that or not. I don't know how she is, but I'd be very jealous because in Texas I think it's similar weather to Florida where, you know, it's 100 during the day with, you know, 100% humidity, and at night it's 90 with, you know, 85% humidity, so it's still muggy and sticky, so I'm very jealous. Yeah, actually the first time Joanne's dad was in Paso, um, we're, he was listening to the radio, and he came out and he said, this is just impossible. The, num- the radio was lying. And I said, what are you talking about? And Because it was about 85 and he said the humidity is seven. He goes, it's impossible for the humidity to be seven. <laughs> so he went to the store and bought and bought a, like a home weather kit, so he could just see for himself that the humidity is that low. And Did he it, fe- was. it was. <laughs> that's yeah. a, that's a great story. Um, so the wines, the grapes that you're making with you know. Grenache and Syrah, Mavedra, Petit Syrah. I mean, for me, I kind of, I don't want to say I stumbled onto Paso, but I, I knew Paso just by some of the bigger producers that I would see in the store, but it wasn't necessarily something I was drawn to. Those particular varietals from those bigger producers from that area were still cab, most of all. Uh, it wasn't until I started exploring the Rhone Valley in France and getting into some of those wines and doing a little research that I, I stumbled on an article that talked about Paso and some of the great things that they were doing in making those type of wines. Is Am I just kind of behind the eight ball a little bit here, or is this just kind of popping up and, and Paso starting to really become you know more well-known for, for what they're doing? I, I think the problem you have, and probably most of uh, the United States has, is the smaller wineries of Paso Robles are not distributed anywhere. So you'll never find them in the store. The stuff you find in the store are the bigger wineries that make, um, you know, less, uh, make Cabernet. And it's, it's probably not, it's probably not the highest quality Cabernet in Paso because there are some really great Cabernets in Paso but you'll probably never find them in the store because those wineries are too small to be uh, distributed anywhere. So it's kind of hard to get to know it when you can't find it. So it's only people like you that kind of research it out and say, Hey, there's gotta be something to Paso. And they'll, they'll reach out to a winery or come out here and start tasting the wines. And it's like, Oh my God, there's stuff going on there. That's great. Yeah, and, and that's quickly what I found out in just uh, being able to find a few of, of the types of wines we're talking about from Paso in some little wine shops here in, in the Houston area, but also getting some from you. Um, but everything I see from the bigger producers is just cab. Do they, you know, when I think about Justin or Austin Hope or J. Lore or some of those that are out there, do they also make 
GSMs and Shiraz and things like that? We just don't see it. They keep that kind of local. Um, I, I think mostly they make small amounts of those wines. So I don't know how widely they're, they're distributed. And the reason I'm asking but, that question, I'm just trying to figure out, is everybody going to, you know, what the soil and what we were talking about with, you know, it's more, uh, that type of soil is more for these types of grapes. And so people are starting to make GSMs and, you know, just the petite Syrahs and things, or are people in that area still, for the most part, still trying to make cabs? Uh, the, the bigger wineries and the bigger varietals that they make is always going to be capped because there's just not enough of the other grapes. Okay. But on, on the other hand, if you get to the smaller wineries around here that make cab, you're going to find some Cabernets that rival Napa Valley at about a third price or a quarter of the price. Wow. So Cabernet does grow really good down here. But you pretty much have to get into the west side of Paso Robles in, in Willow Creek and, and Adelaida up into the hills at the higher elevation. And when you get up there, you, you're going to find just fabulous Cabernet. And that's, that's kind of why I wanted to do this show, because I've really enjoyed kind of, and I'm just kind of getting into it just on the tip of, of exploring Paso. But I, I, I've really been very pleased in what I found so far. And I want people to know that there's really some, some cool things going on and some great wines being made by, by you all out there. And I, I think you're exactly right. My wife and I are members at several different places uh, in California and all of them, to your point, Eric, are those small, you know, boutique type wineries where it's people like you, it's the family members who are actually running the business and, and, you know, farming the land and, you know, doing the grapes and, and doing everything. And we just have found over the years that, that's the best wine. That's at least that's what we enjoy the most, the, the wine that those people make. So uh, hopefully more and more people will start exploring this and finding this. You, well, the, the yeah. kind of the problem, the problem everybody that is kind of facing the wine in, industry in general is it had such consolidation in the people that sell the wine. They're just very, very big. So as plainery, is going to be at 30 or 40 or 50,000 cases, a wine distributor doesn't even really even want to deal with them because they're just too small. The distributor has can only put so many brands in their sales and the sales book is already loaded to the hill. Gotcha. So they really don't want to bring, they really don't want to bring in a wine that everybody gets excited about and then Two months later, it's gone. Okay, that makes sense. I they mean, to, from a that, for a business, I, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, but something that's going to be in stock all year round. And in Paso, I would say probably eighty-five percent of the wineries are under three thousand cases, maybe five thousand cases. They're very small. Wow. Okay. And there's there's a tremendous amount of them like Sarah and Bryce that are about a thousand cases that make some of the best wines you're going to find in the, in the town. So I guess the, the, key point, the key point here would be, we need to go visit. We need to go explore and just kind of check it out. <laughs> Sounds like. Yeah. We're, we're, we're like visiting Texas. We're pretty down home friendly out here. There, all right. Well, that's our next stop. My wife and I have already said that our, our next visit is going to be come to Paso and, and check it out and, come see everything that you guys have to offer. And we're looking forward to that. That'd be great. Bryce and Sarah, you guys are young winemakers. And I think you, I mean, kind of tell me your approach. I think you're taking a, I don't know if it's a different approach, a new approach, but you have kind of what you're trying to do as far as wine and who you're trying to kind of uh, target as, you know, people who will buy your wine and appreciate your wine and get to enjoy your wine. Tell us what you're doing with Toronto. So yeah, I mean, with Toronto, we we wanted to make a wine that was, you know, of a certain quality, obviously, but still very drinkable and approachable. So that you know, specifically younger wine drinkers could get into wine 
and not drink a bunch of crap that you're going to get in a grocery store. Because I just know when we were getting into wine, I was very frustrated. It was either like two Titanic Cabernets or like kind of wimpy, watery, but easy to drink wines. And I'm like, why is there nothing kind of in between here? And so we always wanted to, you know, make something that is so approachable but doesn't lack complexity in body. Because I know like younger people want good wine too. And it's just about trying to, you know, we just want to create something that they can appreciate and, and can get them started on this journey of finding quality wine. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, well, one thing you mentioned to me too, which I thought was, you know, I thought was great was you're, you're aware of young people being on a budget, but you don't, you don't think that should, you know, preclude them from being able to enjoy good wine that you're, you're trying to make sure you have that balance of making really good wine, not, not going to be cheap, but it's going to be, you know, somewhat affordable so people can enjoy a good wine at a good price, but it's going to be a really good value. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, you know, when you look at our wines, Compared to what you get in the grocery store, yes, they're higher. Um, but they are a premium item. And so, but within that, when you also look at other wineries in this area, wineries that get grapes from vineyards close to us and, um, and very similar to us, their prices are double, triple what we're doing. So we're very aware of, you know, keeping our prices affordable, but there is still a value uh, to this product. And, um, it is still, you know, it, it does cost money to put wine in the bottle. So Absolutely. we're making such little amount, you know, we can't compete with grocery store prices. But when it comes down to, you know, we're trying to keep it affordable enough that we hope people can find the value in our product, that it is worth it uh, for them. So how, how would you and Bryce describe your style of winemaking? Hmm. And, and, and I asked that because I, I think I read somewhere that you're trying to kind of keep that that old world style of winemaking. Would that be fair? Yeah, so I would say I, I like to think of our style as very balanced between old world and new world. And, and in anything, I think everything we do, we're always trying to find just a, a good balance. Because I think each style, you know, when you're specifically talking about old world and new world, they each have you know, pros and cons, and it's not really our job to say one is better than the other, but for what we're trying to produce, it's beneficial for us to look at kind of everything that both styles use and, and the techniques they utilize, and we can kind of pick and choose, and thankfully, being in California, we have the freedom to make wine really however we want, but at the same time, the traditional kind of old world way, may, way of making wine it's been used for a long time and they make good products and it shouldn't be, you know, put to the side merely because it's been done. I think we, you know, we try and talk to these winemakers from France and Italy and, and figure out why do you do your wines this way? How do you make your wines better? And then we take that knowledge back with us and we can use it while still kind of expressing our own style with, being able to blend whatever we want, being able to have, you know, almost higher alcohol wines and, and being able to be a little more expressive uh, with our products. But I think we're just trying to, you know, create the best product possible. And within that, we are going to use every tool that we can um, and, and not necessarily stick to one style merely because uh, it is what it is. So you guys are always kind of, tweaking and playing and experimenting and, and trying to think outside the box a little bit to see what you can come up with. Yeah. I mean, we're always just, we want to approach everything with an open mind. Sure. I think one thing with wine is so many people have this idea in their head of what wine should be, what wine tasting should be, what this varietal should taste like. And I think that is the beginning of the end for, you know, wine knowledge because there's so much to this industry on tasting and in wine making, I mean, the studies that, that camp colleges and researchers are doing, that we don't know nearly close to what we could about wine. And so in anything, we just, we always try to approach it with an open mind and we can always be okay saying, maybe this isn't the best way to do it. Maybe there is something better. 
And, um, yeah, I mean, we just, we want to make sure we always grow. You know, yeah. we've only been making wine for five years. We definitely don't know it all. And uh, we don't ever want to presume that. Well, I think you're taking a great, great approach. And, and I, I love that you're, you're willing to, you know, try new things and, and, you know, you're open to always, you know, exploring and seeing and, and experimenting and doing things. Cause I think in the end, hopefully that, you know, and I think it will just gives us a better product in the bottle and we get to enjoy that. But to your point about people who always have just kind of this mindset on wines, I, I think a lot of people, I think more in America have kind of, you know, they lock themselves into a lane of wine instead of wanting to explore uh, more varietals, more styles of winemaking, just all of those things. And hopefully people starting to see different parts of the States and maybe even going outside the States will see that wine is just this never ending journey for us to explore and appreciate and enjoy. So I think I appreciate that you guys are doing that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, just to anyone like drinking wine, getting into it is you never know, like until you try it and, and it's okay if you don't like the wine, but just don't ever say no merely because it's a certain varietal or because you think it's made a certain way because wine is a surprise you and there's so much variety. And that's really what makes this industry so fascinating is, um, I mean, there's over 10,000 wineries in this country and we're all different in some way. Sure. One, one thing I saw that you all are doing in the way that you plant, and I hadn't seen this before, but it, I mean, it may be more common than I think it is. But, you know, when I go to Napa, I always see the, the vines, you know, a certain way on the trellises. But you guys are doing a teepee-style planting. What, what is this? So the teepees uh, are a growing uh, it's a method of planting that is done in the northern Rhone, uh, specifically in Kotroki and Kunju. And they plant their vines. Uh, on at the base of two wooden poles that come together to form a TP shape. And the plant grows up the vine or up the pole. And so what happens is the vine itself is pretty low to the ground. But all of the foliage grows vertically up this post that's over six feet tall. On a normal trellis system, the foliage is usually maybe a foot. A uh, foot and a half above the grapes, and that's all you get. You cut off the tops, and you know you focus the energy back down into the vines. Well, on these plants, the the foliage is really up to six feet tall, and what it does is you're creating more opportunity for photosynthesis. You know, you're getting more energy into those vines. The leaves protect the vines better from sun and wind and uh, animal damage. And we just, you know. This was one of those things that we took an old world technique that it's not necessarily the greatest in terms of getting more crops, but for us, that's not the priority. We want a higher concentrated fruit with less quantity coming off the vines. And this style generally does limit the amount of vines, uh, the amount of grapes that each vine produces. So it really is perfect for what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah. And, just trying to get the best tasting fruit. Because in winemaking, people need to understand that they may not know this. Uh, if the vine has to struggle to produce fruit, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to having our Viena planted like that, we have, we have about two acres, uh, just over two acres of Viena planted. Now on an average acre, about 2,000 vines per acre are planted. Our Viena is planted at 8,000 vines per acre. Oh, wow. So what that means is they have to really fight against each other and struggle to get the nutrients out of the soil. And we're getting really, really stressed fruit. But the flavor that comes from those vines, it's really amazing. Yeah, that, that's that's really a nice technique. And, and, yeah, for us who drank wine, we get to we get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, if, if no pun intended, right? <laughs> Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the wines that you you all are offering, Eric and, and Joanne. Right now, I mean, going through what you guys are offering to people who want to look you all up, uh, and and if, let's give them the website if they're going to go look you guys up and want to order wines from your website. What is it? Uh, just uh, rabbitridgewinery.com. 
and wines that, that we're, we're going to be able to get, obviously, Joanne's favorite, the Chardonnay. Yeah, we're on, on there, we, we've got we've got really uh, really two brands on there right now. We've got the, the Rabbit Ridge brand, which is, is about three or four wines. It's a Zinfandel, a Rhone-style wine, Allure, Primitivo. a Petit Syrah, Primitivo. And then our reserve wines are all in the in the Russell family uh, vineyard label, and under that we have Joanne's favorite uh, Chardonnay, and then we have a Zinfandel we call OVZ, and then we have uh, another big red uh, Syrah Petite Syrah Zinfandel blend called uh, LPR, and then we have. Uh, a wine called Reflection, which is a blend of Petite Syrah, uh, 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 Cabernet Sauvignon, Petite Verdot, and Cabernet Franc. It's probably our most popular wine right now. And then we have Cabernet Sauvignon, and then we have a wine called 70, uh, which is a Bordeaux blend. Uh, we only made six barrels of it and put it in special barrels that were only made from the heart of the oak tree. So the, the heartwood is actually a slight little pink tinge to it. And uh, that's our biggest, our biggest and our biggest and baddest and most Texas wine. Really? Okay. Do you offer on there the Tempranillo? Oh, I'm sorry. We do have a Tempranillo also. And one more that I just drank uh, two nights ago that I really liked was the two nice petites. I'm a big fan of the Petit Verdot and the Petit Syrah, and I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. That was a really good wine. Yeah, you know, that it's really funny. Uh, you know, you were talking about winemaking, and Tara mentioned how things change all the time. And that wine came to be one year when I had, uh, it was the last day of harvest, and we only had one tank, and the, the tank would hold 20 tons. And I thought the grapes I thought I was going to get uh, um, enough to just go in there. I'm sorry, the, the, we had two tanks. We had a 10-ton tank and a 20-ton tank. And I picked 10 tons of Petite Syrah, but the Petite Verdot um, uh, picked out a little bit less. And so I had a choice. I could either have the 20-ton tank only be half full, or I could just put the two of them together. And so I said, oh, what the heck? And I just put the two of them together. With and the, it made the absolute best It made the best wine of the whole harvest season. And to your point earlier, so, if it didn't work out, you'd just put it in a bottle and drink it at your house, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so we we just bottled it up. And it's kind of funny because the same thing happened this year. And uh, we actually named the wine. It's, it's in the barrel. It's not in the bottle or anything. It's still aging. But we call it Texas Cuvée. Really? And it comes from a vineyard. Yeah, we have we have it in a vineyard that's it's actually on a road called Texas Road. And one day we were we were picking the grapes and we we had some Cabernet and some uh, um, Merlot, and I left over. They wouldn't fit into the tanks they were going to go into. And I said, "Oh, let's just put them together." So we put them together, and it tasted really good, just as juice. I said, you know, this probably be pretty good if we added some Petite Syrah to this. So the next day we picked some Petite Syrah. And then the next day later, we picked a little more Petite Verdot and blended it all together. And it might be the best, the best wine we have of this harvest. And that was, and that was so from 19? It was in 2019. Yeah. Wow. Nothing we were planning on making. It just kind of, we just kind of, you know, Sarah, Bryce, and I, we just kind of figured it out at harvest, and we just kept, uh, you know, adding grapes to the tank, and pretty soon it was pretty darn good. That's pretty cool. That, that, that's kind of the fun of winemaking, right, doing those kind of things, I would assume? Yeah, and, you, you know, the other thing about winemaking is no matter how much you plan, you never know what you're going to do the next day. Yeah. Or uh -huh. you never know how the next day is going to turn out. So every day is a new day. That wine sounds interesting. Is it going to be bottled this year, the end of this year? No, no, it'll be next year. Yeah, it'll probably be the end of next year. Yeah, yeah. next we year. Don't, we got to we got to come up we got to come up with a name for it. So maybe uh, 
maybe your listeners could uh, come up with a name. You for know, it we'll, for we'll it. ask them to make that suggestion. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, you're going to get a lot of Texas stuff being suggested. Something with Texas. I mean, hey, it came from Texas Road Vineyard. That's what I was going to say. They, they, they're going to be most of them are, are Texas people, so you're going to be absolutely asking to uh, have that thrown in there. That Texas name. <laughs> I do. While we're talking about your wines, Eric, uh, you and I were were talking just a little bit about you're doing something really cool. And I don't know if it's been done before or not. Maybe it has. But you're kind of collaborating with uh, an Italian winemaker and you're kind of putting a bottle together, right? Yeah, I've always had a real love for Sangiovese and and, uh, it's been really uh it's one of the grapes that hasn't we haven't been able to find down here and i i uh went to italy and we found a winemaker that we just were really bonded with in italy um in uh, san germano and we brought back in bulk containers um a a thousand a thousand three thousand liters of his uh, Chianti Classico. And then we took that 3,000 liters of Chianti Classico and we blended it with our Cabernet, Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, and Cabernet Franc to make kind of an international super Tuscan wine. So we blended, the, we blended them all together, mixed it up, and put the wine back into uh, uh, bigger barrels it's aging at the winery now, and we're probably going to bottle it up this summer. And uh, we're going to label that with a special label, and uh, it's going to be called Passone Divina. That sounds really cool. I will tell you my wife's favorite varietal is a Sangiovese, so she's going to definitely want a piece of this. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's, it's, this, this winery in Italy, he, his wines don't make, come to the United States. He just sells it off. Um, mostly around Florence and uh, and the in San Germano, and the wine is fabulous. Uh, we went uh, we spent ten days touring wineries in Italy, and his wine was the best wine we had in Italy. Is this something new, Eric? Is this something that have you heard of this being done before? Is this something where you're going? This is kind of I've not heard of a, a winemaker in a in the, in Italy or France and in, in the U.S. kind of combining. Is, has that been done before? Uh, I, I don't know. Okay. Um, probably, guess... probably, probably not. And the nice thing about it is, you know, it's hard to have, it's a lot of times it's hard to get uh, two people on the same page, but um, Danielle in, in Italy, he's just like we are. He's total family oriented, total small winery, small production hands-on he does absolutely everything himself and we're both kind of like uh, kindred spirits in the wine world with with very similar passions and that's why we named it uh divine passion because it's from two very passionate wine families that's awesome i mean i can't wait to try it and you said it's going to go into the bottle later this summer does it gonna is it going to age in the bottle or is it going to be ready to be uh purchased We'll we'll probably uh, let it age in the bottle a little bit, and hopefully it'll be released uh, in the fall. Okay, very cool. I'm looking forward to that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, there's a very there's a very very famous Italian wine that I really fell in love with. My first Super Tuscan uh, Antonori Tignanello, and uh, I really like the wine. And I think one of the inspirations to doing this wine is that wine had become so expensive that I can't afford to buy it anymore. Okay, I was about to ask you, is that the Tiganello I'm thinking of that's, you know, 150 bucks or more? Yeah, but when I first had it, it was it was $39. Is that right? Yeah. And and it's 100 is it 100% Sangiovese, isn't it? Uh it's about 80% Sangiovese okay. and and 20% Cabernet Franc. Wow. I didn't realize you, you know, I, I haven't been in wine as long as you, obviously, but I didn't know it was at any point that low in cost. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. In the old days, in the old days, uh, things were different. 
Yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, Sarah and uh, and Bryce, let's let's talk about when when people go to is it SeranoWinery dot com? Is that the website? It's Serrano Wine. SeranoWine.com and uh, wines that you all are making and, and have available. People want to kind of order some bottles. Let's let's talk about what you guys are offering right now. So we have a pretty good variety. Um, we do a Viognier, 100% Viognier, and that's probably what we're most known for. Uh, and then we do a couple of red blends. Um, so we actually have a, a few wines that are named after uh, Harry Potter references. So uh, that's been fun to kind of market to um, fans of those stories. But we make a, a DSM called Pork Rex, which is uh, from the stories. And then we make a Zinfandel and Pistola blend called Firebolt. We make a Petit Salah heavy blend with Salah and Cab, uh, not wines called Knox. Okay. And then we make a cab. We actually just released our 2017 Cabernet uh, last week. And it's absolutely fantastic. I think our 17 vintage was the strongest we've you know ever done. And um, this cab, is, if you're a cab fan, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Awesome. Those, those sound like great wines as well. Um, but you, as well as Eric having his special wine, you and Bryce, over the last few years... Uh, have been putting something together. And I think it, it, last time we, we chatted a little bit, it's been in the barrel for a while. And this is really cool. And, and uh, you know, I know it's had a an awful time that, uh, you know, we're kind of talking about it as far as the tragedy that just happened, but I'm not going to say anymore. I'm going to let you kind of talk about what this wine is and who it's a tribute to. Uh, so, um, yeah, so we have been approaching and we knew we wanted to make a you know, really special wine to commemorate that so uh, with the 17 vintage being so strong it was kind of the perfect opportunity to make a blend and uh, we were trying to think of a name that was you know very meaningful to us and uh, just our journey as winemakers and as business owners and so we are both uh, big Kobe Bryant fans and uh, so we decided to name our wine Mamba, uh, just to kind of represent the Mamba mentality of, you know, every day just trying to be better than you were before and, and approaching each day like an opportunity to better yourself and, and better your brand for us. And um, so we named it, you know, two years ago, and we'd always had the dream of sharing our wine with uh, Kobe, but unfortunately that um, will not be possible, but... Uh, we're still, you know, moving forward making the wine because, I mean, if we're being honest, Toby, he would never give up. So No, he, he was absolutely that, that mama mentality that you talked about. I mean, you know, it, it absolutely was with him. He he was somebody who just strived for perfection and, you know, never got less than 100% from that guy. And I think you all doing that, and it's unfortunate that the tragedy happened uh, because I think – you know, Kobe would have just been honored to receive a bottle of wine that was made, you know, in his honor for his mentality of, of striving for perfection. And I think part of it, I think when we talked before was you and Bryce were also athletes and kind of grew up and as athletes kind of looking at him as an athlete and trying to kind of follow that. And that kind of carried over into the wine world as well. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So when when is this wine going to be bottled? Available? Is it? It's is it going to be a while? What are we looking at for this wine for people to be able to get it? So we bottled it last year, but we are going to release it in October. So October of 2020 is the official five year mark of Serrano, and so it will be released um, this coming October. Are you doing any kind of future sales on it? Can people buy it now and ship it in October, or do they have to wait to buy it until October? We are we're creating a an email list um, to you know for the release, but as of now, it's being released first to our one club members. Okay, uh, and then it will then go to the waiting list that uh, we have created. So. And can we ask, and you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but price point on this particular wine? I'm not entirely sure yet. Okay. okay. You know? 
Yeah. I, I'm telling you, people. It won't be, it won't be you know. Yeah, people are going to be excited about this. We only made 75 cases. That's it. So uh, we have to cross our fingers that it, it, it gets outside the wine club members and some of the other people might hopefully get a chance to get a bottle or two. Yeah. That's a small production. <laughs> well, create the demand. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about wine club. I mean, if it's going to go to wine club members first, tell us about your wine clubs, what the options are there, and, uh, you know, kind of how it works. Yeah, so we offer, you know, we do a pretty basic club just because we don't have a bunch of employees to manage it for us. But um, we currently are doing a six and a 12 bottle club, but we're in the process of adding a three bottle uh, club. And it's twice a year since it's spring and the fall. And, you know, we, we decided to start offering a three bottle club because, you know, kind of what we were talking about before, we want our wines to be accessible to everyone. And I know six bottles, you know, can be a bit of a commitment for some people, uh, especially, you know, younger, the, the younger generation that was still kind of hustling and making money. So uh, we decided to start off with a smaller commitment. So just to get people introduced to our wines and then hopefully, you know, as, as we all grow older, we can kind of get more into the um, six bottle clubs in the future and, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, when they join the wine club, is it can they pick like a whites, a reds, a mixed? Can they pick each shipment? Do you make some suggestion? And then if they say, well, I'd like to have these three or these, you know, whatever, how does it work? So we offer either a mixed option or an all red option. Uh, we currently allow our case members to customize, but the six bottle and three bottle clubs are wine with his choice. Okay. We make you know, a lot of wine specifically for the club, and we have to allocate a certain number. Sure. So we don't have too many case numbers, so we can allow them to, uh, you know, as, a, as another perk of, of their commitment to us, we allow that customization. But, yeah, otherwise we ask our club to kind of take what we give them, and, and we're always trying to make something new and, and just expose our club to different wines and kind of keep their minds open. No, absolutely. I think that's great. Okay, Sarah, on ordering wine from the wine club, do you have anything on shipping? How does shipping work? Yeah, so currently through at least the end of March, we're doing a shipping special uh, because we know everyone's in a bit of a tight spot right now with uh, the you know pandemic happening, uh, and we wanted people still to be able to get their wines uh, at, a, at an affordable price. So we're offering $1 shipping on three or more bottles throughout the entire country. And uh, the way to do that is you just, you know, go to our website, uh, put at least three bottles in the shopping cart, and then the promo code is wash your hands with no spaces, and that gets you $1 shipping um, throughout the month. Wash your hands. I love it. That's that's the code. We try and just <laughs> please keep it. Keep it humorous while we can. <laughs> and I think it's great that you're offering that because if you're going to be locked in your house and, you know, they want you to self-quarantine or, you know, not move around so much, you might as well have some good wine while you're while you're sitting there in your home, right, playing cards or watching TV. Exactly. That yeah. is exactly what we're thinking. And, and just so I have it right. We're all doing our – Say that again? We're all doing our part of the drink. The, the Veritol, you know, the, the red wine qualities are – That's that. – you know, we, we believe in that. So uh, we're, we're doing our red wine for very I'm drinking more than normal just so I get enough of that in my system. Is that a good thing? I'm with you. I am too. <laughs> so Sarah is S on hands, right? Wash your hands. Wash your hands. All right, perfect. No we will We will get that out to everybody. I'll also put it on my, my big... Facebook group and make sure everybody knows there once I uh, announce the uh, the uh, episode as well. So that's great. That's great that you guys are doing that. Wonderful. Eric, talking about your, your wine club as well. Can we tell everybody what you offer for wine clubs? Uh, we, we have uh, <clears throat> we have like a, a regular um, six uh, wine club where you get six bottles twice a year. And they're kind of our our um, our more affordable wines, 
and then we have a regular mix six, and then we have a reserve uh, six and a reserve mix. And with the reserves, you'll you'll always get uh, the very best wines that we have. Okay. We also ship twice a year, like Sarah. So we do spring and fall. Is that April, March? When when do you ship? But usually every March, okay. every March and every October. And okay. we, have, we have so many members that cross over between our two families that we now ship them together. So we, we ship Toronto oh, rather yeah. Boy, that's uh, a great point, Joanne. Yeah, so it's been great. Uh, everybody's getting introduced to each of our own wines, and we're, we're getting combined members. Uh, and we also allow a little bit of customization on our on members that commit to us. Uh, and that's just part of customer service we found with any club. That seems to be the number one thing people want is flexibility and talk to the owners and know that we are thinking of them and their financial situation and their taste. So sure. their, you know, what it is that they want to do. So we, we try to be flexible, but uh, so we have to also produce wine in preparation for the wine club. So we, we do suggest and have winemakers suggest and selections that go in the club. And then it depends on the type of member if they need to change something on a person to person. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And I, I do think most people join a wine club so they can explore more of the wines that you guys are making. Uh, I know I do that, uh, but I know sometimes you fall in love with, you know, you make one wine or whatever it might be, and you go, man, I really love that one, and I want to get one more. But that's not to say if you're in the six-bottle club, you have no problem with somebody saying, hey, look, give me those six, but I want to add two more of these and make it eight, right? Of course. We love those add-ons. Absolutely. Uh, that's a wonderful part of it, certainly. Okay. Anything else before we, uh, we, we start to close it out here? Anything else we want to talk about with uh, Rabbit Ridge, Russell Family, Serrano that we want to make sure that people know? Have we covered everything? I think so. Yeah, it all sounds good. Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, getting some more of your wines. We look forward to coming out and seeing you all. My wife and I are excited to do that. Uh, I appreciate you guys coming on the show and, uh, kind of letting us all know what's going on in Paso and kind of the wines you're making and specifically what you guys are doing at Serrano and at uh, Russell Family and Rabbit Ridge. Thank you guys for that. No, thank you. Very welcome. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Food, Wine, and Whiskey in Your Own Backyard. And until our next episode, enjoy your next pour.